Hey, it's John from CityCast. If you're in the mood to pamper yourself a little bit this week while supporting cruelty-free products, you should check out Bone Cur Home and Wellness. It's the best place in Portland to find everything from chic home decor to cannabis accessories. They've got a curated collection of vegan and cruelty-free home goods and wellness products because their name is French for kind heart, after all. You'll get a 20% discount on your first order when you sign up for emails this week at boncoeur.net. That's B-O-N-C-O-E-U-R.net. And use the code BONCOEURCITYCAST20. We often think of Oregon as a green wonderland, which is why it's surprising that Portland has some of the worst air quality in the country. And it's getting worse. So why is it so bad? And what can we do about it? Today on CityCast Portland, we're talking with Mary Pivato, Executive Director at Neighbors for Clean Air. After advocating for better air quality in our city for over a decade, Mary says one of the hardest parts of her work is that most people still have no clue how many pollutants we're breathing here in Portland. It's Monday, April 10th. I'm Claudia Meza, and this is what Portland's talking about. Mary, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, I Before we jump in, I wanted to ask you, like, what got you into uh, clean air advocacy? So it is kind of crazy story. I Honestly, I was a mom, three kids, and I was looking online for the uh, farm to school lunch program that was uh, at Portland Public Schools. And as things happen... Um, instead, what came up was uh, industrial air pollution in America's schools. 178,000 schools across the country they had actually um, put into their database. And up came this picture of the ranking of my children's Northwest Portland School, Chapman Elementary, as being among the worst 2% in the country for um, exposure to industrial air pollution. And I was floored, honestly. It wasn't what I was looking for that day. I hadn't thought, boy, I need a new career. Um, I just saw something that really shocked me. And I shared it with friends. I shared it with other parents at the school. And we started organizing to figure out why. Yeah, usually when people think of the Chapman School, they think of uh, those those sparrows that go down the chimney, they're not really thinking like, oh, this is a terrible place for kids to breathe and exist in. <laughs> like that's not, uh, yeah, because we all have this idea that Portland, green trees, we have good air. But uh, why is the air so bad here? Like we live in a valley, right? And so the, somehow the shape of the valley is, is, is lending itself to us having terrible air. And that's so annoying (laughs) because we can't change that. (laughs) Right. Which isn't that different from a lot of the places, especially in the United States that have some of the worst air. A lot of them have to do with those basins, if you will, Um, mountain ranges and valleys that create the pockets where the air pollution, where the human activity will create air pollution and then it'll sit in those places. So Portland does have that. You know, we have our West Hills and our Valley And we have wind patterns that um, prevail that push where the industrial and um, air pollutant creation, you know, pushes it into our 
into our city and kind of makes it sit there. Um, but we also have, you know, air pollution is a bit of a blind spot when you're considering air toxins. You know, Portland at the time when I saw was very proud of the fact that, for example, carbon emissions had uh, been on a decline, even as, you know, our population was growing and, and activity was growing. And so what I realized, though, was that Portland that found itself, considered itself so progressive on carbon emissions, um, for example, was really bad or just a blind spot on, on other emissions. And so carbon um, and greenhouse gas is one pollutant, but the, the host of pollutants that I discovered in my neighborhood are associated with industrial activity are called hazardous air pollutants. They're a whole mm -hmm. different classification. And they aren't really well captured. When we monitor the air um, to meet federal standards, for example, there are only six pollutants that have federal standards. And yeah, Portland's pretty good on those. And we've seen some declines. But industry, who's emitting 600 plus other pollutants that can cause cancer, we actually have no enforceable limits for those. And that seems so backwards. It does. Because it's it's directly affecting us. Health. Exactly. Yeah. Our health. Yeah. Yeah. And so it it is kind of backwards. And the better we get at, you know, all of us, you know, either trying to drive less or drive lower emitting cars, the bigger, you know, proportionately the problems of these other engines are. So for example, you know, you and I have to take our car to the Department of Environmental Quality testing site in order to register it. Right. But big trucks or trains or um, all the construction equipment or ships, those actually aren't controlled at all as well. These trucks that emit diesel pollution, that is 80% of the pollution that we breathe and the particulate matter that we breathe and the carbon and, and greenhouse gases, they don't have tests. They don't in Oregon. They no, really, almost nowhere. California is the only state in the nation that has set its own standards, and it's allowed to by the federal. The federal government allows it to be more um, aggressive more than aggressive the federal? federal. Gotcha. And so California has done that and used that um, authority that it has to address diesel engines, and it has set really strict standards for all you know, pretty much across every sector of diesel, whether it's the, you know, the big trucks or the equipment also, um, all the construction equipment as well. Um, and Washington state does not have any stricter regulations um, than the federal government, you know, has, but it has invested a lot more money of its own general funds. And so Oregon was really caught in the middle between these two states that were being more aggressive, we're identifying the problem with diesel and being more aggressive to try and phase it out. And so what was happening in Oregon is we were basically becoming the dumping ground of those two states. So even though, you know, because we didn't have either, we weren't doing either regulations or, you know, really coming up with more money to and focused efforts to um, clean up the old diesel engines. And so, so we became, you know, a, sort of a bargain area for like buying old engines, you know, businesses in Oregon, because we weren't doing anything to get rid of them. 
Yeah. So basically vendors from California and Washington were just like, Oregon will buy these. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. The saddest story, the saddest example of that that I remember hearing about was a school bus company. So that, you know, operated school buses in California and Oregon and actually delivered buses up to Oregon and had them take the d- diesel particulate filters off. What? They had to, you know, they needed them to put them on the ones that were operating in California. Oh my God. You know, we understand the, you know, diesel particulate in a school bus is the worst of the worst because not only is it bad emissions, but the emissions inside the school bus then are like four times higher. And there was a study in Washington state done around cleaning up school buses and showed that when they cleaned up the school buses, there was less asthma and there was lower rates of absenteeism. So again, I have to, I have to, you know, take a win. 20, 2019, we did set some re- registration standards. Those are just taking effect on the oldest of the old, you know, for medium heavy duty trucks cannot register the oldest of the old anymore. Um, you know, and, and we are, it will slowly phase them out. It is not quick enough and it's not, we're still lagging, but at least we, we put a you know, stake in the ground somewhere against this big problem, but yeah. there's so much more work to do around diesel particulate pollution. Do you think that a lot of it is because our industry of logging and farming and construction has been so strong historically? Well, I, I mean, I will say many representatives coming from logging and, you know, those industries are some of the strongest voices against changing anything. You know, and and so it is frustrating. And what's interesting, especially around a lot of these diesel regulations that would clean up construction equipment, for example, mostly agricultural and logging is all exempt from that. We're just trying to clean up the pollution where the people are. This is an environmental justice issue. This pollution is four times higher where there are higher concentrations of black and brown people. And those Mm -hmm. are in our cities. That is due to transportation infrastructure. It's where we put our freeways. It's where we put, you know, our historically um, redlined people to live and then put their schools there. And so, you know, we've been working a lot over the years with um, students at Harriet Tubman School. And, you know, they're right on top of that freeway. And that freeway that is not just a, a new problem today. That freeway was put into the black community there. So this has been a really big environmental justice issue that I think has been a blind spot in Oregon across not just the traditional opposition, but I even think among our folks, the environmental movement in Oregon was really um so focused on all the natural beauty of our region, which, you know, is not wrong, but they really have not been focused on people and the environmental injustices that our built environment has caused. But you brought up diesel engines and I want to go back because I feel like that's such a workable piece. Um, So I know that there's a lot of talk about electric trucks, basically just, oh, we, we should all just go electric. Like, and I know that you have a counterpoint to that. And I really want to get to that because um, I feel like uh, it's important to sort of differentiate the larger steps and the baby steps we can <laughs> take to get somewhere. Could you explain why if, if um, let's say the state was just like, you know what, guys, we're going electric. We're Figure it out. We'll give you some money, but ultimately you have to do this. What would be your response to that? Thank you for that question. My answers probably aren't always satisfying to everybody, but my issue, so 
so you're right. I mean, electrification is really important, I think, to our long-term um, strategy to deal with the, the changing climate and the power that electrification can help, you know, uh, get us to zero emissions. Um, the problem with diesel engines is that electrification, we know that electrification is in the short run more expensive. So if you aggregate, you know, electrification, you know, over the lifetime of a 30 year engine, you know, the, the numbers come out pretty well, but it takes a huge upfront cost. Right. And so there's that one problem. And so for a lot of the people who are continuing to operate some of the older, dirty, older and most emitting diesel engines, that upfront capital just isn't, you know, that's a huge expense to them. If you electrify, if you decide to take the money that we have and say, okay, I could buy an electric truck or I could make sure that school district has an electric bus, you would end up with one electric truck at the cost of what could be, you know, eight or nine new diesel trucks. We're going to take a quick break here. And when we come back, how to clean air bills up for review have fared this legislative session. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. I just want to move us over to uh, the two bills in this legislative session that were written to help regulate diesel emissions, exactly what we're discussing. But neither of them made it past the legislative deadlines uh, last month. So, I mean, I'm assuming the push was, again, from these industries uh, that, you know, these logging industries or whatever. But, like, do you know any of the background of why they did not move forward? Like, cause it seems like this was what we needed. Yes. Um, I'm, I'm really frustrated that they didn't move forward. And yes, I think there is some standard opposition um, uh, that, that is part of the problem in Oregon, but honestly, I really believe it's the conviction of the people that we really look to and believe in that need to be, be, be more aggressive on this and recognizing this. I think that there is a massive movement globally um, that is catching, that we need to catch up to an organ, which is to prioritize the saving of people's lives um, from one of the, from what is globally the number one killer of people on the planet is air pollution. And that has a study that was analysis done out of University of Chicago using World Health Organization data that shows that, you know, breathing polluted air kills more people than, you know, war or pandemic, even smoking. But if you do policy 
that prioritizes saving people's lives today, then you would be doing policy that maximizes air pollution reductions immediately and urgently. And Oregon isn't there yet. And our leadership and our environmental community isn't there yet to prioritize saving people's lives. And so we are using political capital and, and making choices to, you know, to, to prioritize policy that reduces carbon and greenhouse gas and climate while there seems to be um, a trade-off uh, to, to not do the policy that would save people's lives today. I plan to change that. Right. People were speaking out against the bill. I think a lot of the reasoning was that too many people rely on diesel. And, it, you know, I, I'm just not understanding. Like, what can, what can we do about it? Those who are listening, those who are maybe feeling a little fire in their belly right now. Like, what would you suggest for the public if they want to do something? Help out, figure out how to make sure these bills don't get rejected again. Well, thank you. Obviously, one of the things that we could really use help of is, you know, come to our website, neighborsforcleanair.org, and please sign up to join join the effort and join the work to clean it up. And um, we will help you be involved. But you need to talk to your state representatives. Uh, you can Google find my legislator in Oregon, and you can find out who represents you in Salem. Those people are crucial to our work. We need people who better understand this. It's um, and and better have a better understanding of that it's important to the people they represent. So those things are very important, but please do join our effort. Um, and we are coming back strong and hard. And we actually were speaking with folks a lot during this legislative session before that deadline. And they were talking about making some compromises in these bills that we said no. We don't want to. We don't want to compromise. It's been too long. Mm -hmm. This has been lagging, and so we would rather work with folks to make the bills stronger. So we are very interested in spending our before the next legislative session, really doing the hard work to educate more folks about this and why this is so important. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Mary, for taking the time to speak with us. And yeah, let us in uh, on all that's going on. And thank you for the work that you do. Thank you so much. I really appreciated this conversation today. And now for your microdose of news. During the pandemic, checks on people's eligibility for Medicaid were suspended. But now that Oregon has officially declared the pandemic to be over, the process of checking income starts again this month. The Oregon Health Authority estimates that as many as 300,000 people could become ineligible. That's a lot of people. But Oregon does have a waiver to keep all children on the Oregon Health Plan until their sixth birthday. But once they turn seven, they will have to find a job that provides them with health insurance like the rest of us. And the new Ritz-Carlton Hotel has revealed the list of vendors that will populate its ground floor food hall. Once the space opens this summer, you can get food from restaurants like Kim Jong Grillin', Magna Cucina Sunrise, and Queen Mama's Kitchen. For even more local news and events, sign up for our daily newsletter, Hey Portland. We'll throw a link in the show notes. That's all for today here on CityCast Portland. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more from around the city. Until then, see you at Slim's.